0: Welcome to Inside IR, a podcast
1: series by Herbert Smith Freehills that explores the latest developments in the Australian industrial relations landscape. Hello and welcome to Inside IR, the Australian industrial relations podcast, the series that arms HR, IR and legal professionals with the latest industrial relations thinking. My name is Rowan Doyle. I'm a partner in the Herbert Smith Freehills industrial relations team. And I'm joined today by some seasoned, very experienced <laughs> professionals on the Inside IR panel, partners Natalie Gaspar and Nicholas Ogilvie. Welcome, Nick and Nat.
2: Thanks, Rowan. Good Thanks to be invited aren't. back.
1: Yeah, good to be
0: back. Does that mean I'm old? Is that how it works?
1: <laughs> no, no. Seasoned and Excuse, experienced. Okay, right, I'll uh, that. But you have had a bit of a hiatus from Inside IR. Yeah, head, head I mean, break. What have you been up to during that time, Nick?
0: Uh, studying legislation, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Making sure I'm up to speed,
1: too. Oh, that's good to hear. 278 pages of the new bill, sir. What about yourself, Yeah,
2: likewise. um, Helping clients get across these changes and the reforms that have already come into place. So there's a bit happening in our space, which is fantastic.
1: There, There certainly is, and it has been quite a busy period over the last few months. I mean, we're still dealing with the implications of the last bill, the Secure Jobs Better Pay bill, which commenced last December. And uh, there's, a, there's a bit going on in the IR space, to say the least. We do have a new bill, Nico. You're right. It is 278 pages plus contents page. And <laughs> it has 28 distinct parts. It's called the Closing Loopholes Bill. Um, we'll leave, loop
2: the, holes. <laughs> we'll leave, the, leave the
1: title out of the discussion today. But it does propose reforms that will have a substantial impact on industrial relations in this country, and I think I'd make a case to say that it's probably going to have a bigger impact than the Secure Jobs Better Pay legislation. Uh, So a continuation of the biggest change to industrial relations regulation probably ever.
2: Yeah, I think that's right, Rowan, I think it's important for our listeners and viewers to keep in mind that you look at this piece of legislation in the context of the legislative reforms that have already taken effect. And, you know, as we know, unapologetically, unashamedly, what this suite and package of reforms is designed to do is increase the real wages of Australians. Um, And, you know, this is the second hit of it. and, And I think, you know, as we'll get into a bit more detail that that's probably going to meet its goal.
1: Yep, that's right, Nat. And I mean, what can you tell us about the passage of the bill? What comes next?
2: Yeah, so look, obviously the government was quite keen to move this through this side of Christmas, but um, shortly after the introduction of the bill into the House, um, the Senate announced that it would be referred to the Senate Committee for a report back by the 1st of February. So, um, we do have some time, but it's not a great deal of time, Rowan and Nick, so for people to get across the vast volume of legislation and start thinking about what these reforms will mean to their business. So I think obviously nothing will happen in terms of legislative effect before February this year. One of the other, I think, important things to keep in mind is that most of the reforms are stated to take effect upon Royal Ascent. So people do need to move quite quickly. Some of the changes, um, there is a little bit more lead time. But this is one that, um, whilst there is a short grace period, I think we can anticipate that um, the changes, most of the changes, will will go through, and we need to get ready. Just
0: on that, too, the the one thing that happens already is the anti-avoidance provision, which we'll get to in the in the next part. But um, they commence now, basically. Yeah. So. Yeah.
1: You're right. You make a good point about time. And any avoidance means you kind of need to be acting differently now, uh, just in case it does pass. But there is staggered commencement for some provisions. We have, I think, 1 July 2024 for some, 1 November 2024 for others, and, and January 2025 for, for others again. But um, to give an example as to why there's going to be a lot of time pressure in this, same job, same pay, orders can't take effect until November 2024 but applications can be made from royal assent and so there will be a real mad flurry of activity the minute that these uh these changes pass if they do pass of course so uh, preparation is essential so um what's in the bill that's the big question now we're not going to cover it all today because there's just too much but being the leading ir firm in the country we've published what i think is the most comprehensive and um, helpful summary of the bill in the market, which you can access on our industrial relations reform hub, simply Google Herbert Smith Freehills and closing loopholes. It's got a bit of a ring to it.
2: Um, (laughs)
1: And that will pop up on your Google or other search engine search and be within reach. Um, Here it is for those looking for it. Given that summary, we're not gonna go through every change in detail, uh, but just to set the, the framework for this discussion, the way I look at it is that there are 14 main changes in the legislation, seven big ticket, seven minor. The big ticket items, again, just to set the scene, are one, a new casual employee definition and associated conversion processes. Two, a new definition for working out whether a worker is an employee or contractor. Three, same job, same pay orders, albeit renamed, we'll come to that later, Nico. Four, new workplace delegate rights, Five, new minimum conditions and rights for non-employees in the gig economy and road transport distribution. Six, a new Fair Work Commission jurisdiction in relation to unfair contracts. And seven, a new federal criminal offence for wage theft, including some associated increases in penalties and related compliance changes. So there, what I've been describing as the, the big seven, the seven big ticket items the seven uh, additional minor items you can read in our summary but those seven big ticket changes are going to put a stake in the ground on this and, and um, people might have already seen my linkedin post a similar effect but these changes are going to increase compliance cost for business it's an incredibly complex bill and if you flick through those seven big ticket items multi-factor tests are all over the place uh, is the worker a casual or a permanent employee yeah. multi factor test is the worker a employee or contractor multi factor yeah. should a same job same pay order be made multi factor test and not
0: just multi factor but multi factor plus anything else the commission wants to take into consideration so
1: that's right yeah one of the multi factors is is that yes. Yes. yeah and so this is this is an issue because you need to actually understand what the likely outcome is of all these tests before you can actually determine what the, the compliance minimums are for your business. Now, that, that's an extraordinarily difficult task. So unfortunately, compliance costs are going to go through the roof. Yeah. What will also happen is we're going to be spending more and more time in the commission, because a lot of these changes involve new Federal commission jurisdiction to set minimum conditions of employment or engagement. Same job, same pay orders. Uh, minimum conditions, which will come to nat in the gig economy and in road transport distribution, conversion disputes for casuals, so on and so forth. And um, on top of all of that, I think unions are also now very, if there was any doubt, firmly back in the centre of the IR system by virtue of some new rights that are being given to help them with grassroots organising. So all of those things collectively, it's impossible in my mind to see anything other than labour costs escalating quite significantly.
2: And a degree of disputation in relation to all those um, aspects as well. So not only is the Commission empowered to um, grant orders in relation to those things, but resolve disputes in relation to those things. reasonable minds may differ on that menu of, um, you know, multi-factor tests that you indicated. So we're, so we're back to the future yeah. where, you know, there's all these indicia of employment and a layer of subjectivity and discretion in relation to those things. And, you know, I plead the case that the whole purpose of this regulation is to um, help employers and workers understand what their rights and obligations are. and. and I'm just worried we've taken a bit of a step back as a country in relation to that aspect. Yeah.
1: Look, we'll come back to the bigger picture on all of this, how the reforms interact, what the objective is in in later episodes of Inside IR. But what is important is that employers and principals aren't just mere passengers in the implementation of this new legislation. There are going to be cases that need to be run to help set new minimum conditions. And uh, if employers, principals don't engage with that process, it's essentially writing a blank cheque. It's, it's going to be a very expensive process. So that will require engagement, will require preparation. We're going to do what we can to try and arm you for those uh, processes, in, including the topics that we'll cover today. But as I mentioned, it's going to take a few episodes of Inside IR to get across those seven big-ticket items. Uh, today, we're going to focus on two of what are arguably the biggest of the seven, one being the new same job, same pay orders and jurisdiction, and two being the new minimum rights and conditions for non-employees in the gig economy and road transport contractor space. So without further ado, Nico, same job, same pay. What can you tell us about that, including the name change?
0: Well, that's right. It's not same job, same pay. You won't find that anywhere in the legislation. It's closing the labour hire loopholes or um, regulated labour hire arrangement orders is basically how it's referred to. So for some reason... The... Far less catchy. <laughs> it's a lot harder to write out. But for some reason, the, the bill's moved away from that language, which is even some sort of... the. In the previous um, proposals, it was really around same job, same so pay, but that's been moved away from completely. Um, to really simplify, it, you're right. It's not one of these additional jurisdictions that the commission's been given, uh, and a wide range of powers, and it's, and it's got these indicia tests as part of it. But it, essentially, it is a provision that allows the commission to make an order uh, which covers um, a, a which apply will apply to labour hire, employees of labour hire employees where they're providing their labour to another employee, to a host. Now, where the host has an instrument in place and the instrument would cover those labour hire employees if they're performing the work directly for the host, um, then it the, the gives an entitlement to those labour hire employees to be paid no less than protect what's called a protective rate of pay, so no less than a protective rate of pay, which is what would be applied under that instrument to the, labour hire, to the host employees if it was directly applied. So it's basically setting a, a minimum safety net for, employ, for employees uh, in relation to pay. Um, it doesn't override the existing uh, enterprise agreements that are in place. So you might have a labour hire employee who has his own EBA that has more beneficial conditions. Uh, as long, it, it, What this does just sits a, like a higher bar, higher minimum test for them. Yeah.
1: Um, what, what struck me in reading that though, Nico, is that unlike the legislation we saw in November 2021 on this same topic, it's not automatic. It requires an application to the commission, requires an order. That is a positive. I mean, that delivers a bit of certainty. But it does raise the question about, well, what are the preconditions for the making of that order? Are you able to talk through yeah, that so process, I
0: Niko? Mean, the other point, just before I get to the other point, is that the structure of these arrangements doesn't matter. So uh, the, the the way in which the labour is provided or the corporate structures don't matter, it, it's not relevant whether or not it's an internal corporate arrangement between, uh, between the same group companies. That's all not relevant for the purposes. And it also doesn't matter where the classifications or the categories are not covered by the agreement, provided the labour is being provided, labour is being provided by the labour hire employer, you can apply for the order. So, and you're right, it's by application. So the application can be made by a union, can be made by uh, employees of the host, it can be made by employees of the labour hire provider. So there's a range of different people that can make the application to the commission. Um, really, what you need is it needs an employer not a small business. So there's exemptions for small business, uh, and it supplies labour to an uh, supplies its employees to another business to perform work. Um, that business has an instrument in what's called an industrial instrument so it's br- not just enterprise agreements but broadly trying to capture a whole range of um, awards and other Commonwealth instruments public common sector. public sector things that operate in the same way collectively as industri- as enterprise agreements so they apply and then that instrument would need to be able to establish that, that instrument would if it, were, if it was to apply to the labour hire employees and, they, uh, and, would be, and they're performing the same kind of work or substantially the same kind of work then the, the order can be made, provided that it's reasonable, the commission. And as you said, there's a, there's a range of factors that get taken into account, some of which are interesting because they fall one way or the other, but they don't tell you which way they should fall. So one, for example, is that you need to consider, the commission needs to consider whether or not there's a, a contract for the provision of service, so not really labour hire, but a service contract, mm. uh, and then take that into account. Now, that's not an exception. That's just a thing that the commission must take into account. Mm. So... Mm. Just because it's a contract for service doesn't mean it's, it's outside the regime. It, it might or it might be in it. It just needs to be considered by the commission. Um, in terms of the, the same kind of substantially same kind of work, we're not clear on what that means. Mm-hmm. We can assume, given the way the legislation is bro- uh, written, it's going to be quite broad. Um, we've seen those words before. If you look at the transfer of business provisions, which are in the Act currently, talk about the same or substantially same kind of work. So, um, but. But there hasn't been a lot of jurisdiction dealing with those sort of cases because they either tend not to be contested or not contested on those grounds. So there's going to be a lot of push pressure to work out what's the same or the same kind of work. But I think we can safely assume it's going to be broad. So it's going to take a very, very generous uh, uh, interpretation of those provisions. I'm to
1: zero in on that threshold test, Nico, before we get to what an order does and what are the implications of it. The test for the making of the order, because I know we're using sort of shorthand, using the reference. To labour hire employers, mm-hmm. but it's not expressed that way in terms of the substance of the bill, is it? No. And and it's it's focused on. I'll just read the words: whether where an employer supplies a will will supply directly or indirectly one or an, one or more employees to a regulated host. Yep, that's one of the first mm. prerequisites. Now, as you said, that's quite broad. I mean, directly or indirectly. Yeah, legislation makes it clear there doesn't even need to be a direct contractual That's right. engagement quite, between those entities. that doesn't have to be direct.
0: That's
1: right. So I think the first warning from us is don't just assume this applies to traditional yeah. labour hire. It, no. it doesn't. And to your point, they could have had an express exclusion of service contractors if they wanted in legislation. Yeah. They haven't done that. Merely a factor which suggests you could have orders that apply to service contract arrangements. That's right. Yeah. But I'm also interested, we're getting a lot of questions around the relevance of let's call it the enterprise agreement test. I know there are some other instruments that are in play in this definition. Um, But the extent to which there needs to be an enterprise agreement that covers the work Mm. within the regulated host, the host employer. Now that's a precondition in itself, isn't it? That's right. If there's no enterprise agreement that covers the regulated host in respect of the work, then no order can be made.
0: And the the EM talks about ensuring that uh, the, the, the bargain terms and conditions from the host are mm-hmm. uh, not diluted by labour hire employees um, taking, having mm-hmm. lower terms and conditions when they're performing the same kind of work. So that's what it's really yeah. directed at. Mm-hmm. So preserving that. And it's a real move away from... When we've had enterprise bargaining at, at the enterprise level since the late 90s, whereas the, there was a move in the, the pre Work Act to really... Um, focus on a negotiation and bargaining between employers and employees at the enterprise level. What this does is moves away from that in, in, in conjunction with the multi-enterprise bargaining system as well. You're really moving to much more collective where it's not about the employer and the employees directly but others that are engaged as well.
2: Mm. Yeah, And I think that the scenario that you just described Rowan where there's not an inter- or not an enterprise agreement at the workplace that would apply, um, the solution for workers in that is the multi-enterprise yeah. bargaining stream, of course, which is a Absolutely. feature of the legislation that we currently have in place. So, All this um, interacts quite <laughs> neatly. Yep, yeah, there, no, there is right. an air of collectivism. Mm. In fact, it's more than an air. This is um, about collective bargain terms and conditions up and down the supply chain, regardless of employing entity, where the work performed is comparable or the same. And, you know, we'll come to that when we talk about the road transport sector and gig economy participants as well. Exactly.
1: Well, let's imagine, Nico, so um, it's been established as an application has been made to the Commission. Yep. It's been established that there is an employer who supplies uh, directly or indirectly one or more of their employees Easy. to a host. Yep. That host has an enterprise agreement that if they'd employed this person directly, would cover the work. Yep, They've ticked all those boxes. They're not a small business employer. It's not in relation to a training arrangement, which is also excluded. It's not a short-term arrangement, which we'll come to in a minute. The order's made. What does that mean? What happens?
0: So the effect of the order's made is that order's binding on the labour hire, so what we'll call the labour hire employer and their employees. Uh, and that creates what, as I said, is a protected rate of pay. So the, the obligation on the labor hire employer is to pay their employees who are performing that work of the same kind the protective rate of pay which is defined as the full rate of pay that would apply if they were covered by the instrument going forward under
1: the host enterprise
0: under the host rate. enterprise agreement so there's also a, a, a another regime as part of the provisions there's also an ability to the commission to make an order for an alternative uh, protective rate of pay which for example if there was a uh, another uh, entity in the group or there's other uh, other uh, instruments that apply to related parties, the commission can look at those those instruments and apply that as a protective rate of pay. So it's broader than just, it, it, they have a system where there's just the direct host inter- enterprise agreement. There can be other enterprise agreements to get taken into account as well. So it's quite, it's, it's quite expansive. So any of the sort of structural, I don't know to talk about loopholes, it's about opportunities, but any of the structural opportunities available to look at other entities, that gets ruled out as well.
1: Yeah. And that's an area that's causing a lot of confusion. Again, lots of questions around that. Yep. This this alternative protected rate of pay where you can go, let's call it enterprise agreement shopping and pick the one that's most favourable. Yep. There's still before you can actually get to that, there still necessarily needs to be that first precondition yep. satisfied. And that is there still needs to be an EA that would otherwise cover the work if yep. the Host were to engage the employer to perform that work.
0: Because you're at two levels. So you've got a, a, a regulated labour hire arrangement order being made, and then from that becomes a, either protective rate of pay or some alternative protect, alternative protective rate of pay, which then is imposed on the labour hire employee.
1: I'm interested in the defence that you mentioned, Nico. We um, haven't sort of gone into detail on that yet. the defence as to whether it's fair and reasonable to make the order.
0: That's right. So part of the list of indicia is that the Christian needs to be satisfied, and needs to be fair and reasonable to make the order. So that again. Um, we understand what fair and reasonable is, but there'll be different views. So, and there's a whole range of factors in the in the legislation that gets taken into account in terms of the, the, the history of the the industrial institute that applied, uh, the type of work being performed, uh, the nature of the relationship between the parties. There's and then, as I said, any other factor the commission considers relevant to take into account. So, but the commission needs to, as a threshold, needs to be satisfied that it's fair and reasonable to apply the, the to, impo- to put in place an order and to apply the protective rate of pay.
1: Yeah, and that is one saving grace in this yeah. because. Yeah. There are going to be opportunities for certain employers and hosts to look at that test. They might do the analysis and work out that otherwise they meet all the criteria. There's an EA, it's in respect of substantially the same work, etc. Yeah. But there still might be a basis on which to argue that it wouldn't be fair and reasonable for everyone to have to uplift rates mm. to this highest common denominator. There might be good reasons as to why that's not fair and appropriate. It might be actually, albeit or, or covered by the enterprise agreement might be different work than what employees are otherwise doing with the host and being remunerated at a higher rate for. There might be some historical reason as to why this is happening. There might be operational needs that need to be met. I mean, this is where the preparation comes
2: in. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, for those listening, engaging with your commercial and procurement colleagues, because Mm. this is really, you know, the reality is that the nature by which these services are engaged by and provided by the, the host employer And received by the labour hire provider. There's commercial contract terms that regulate the basis upon which that labour and those uh, is provided. So there's this will really require require some some amendment. Correct. This is Mm. the point. So this needs to be square. This is not a pure sort of IR issue. It really requires people to to engage within the business to understand um, what this looks like.
1: Spot on that. Now, this is, let's assume the order's made. I imagine there's going to be lots of questions or uncertainty between the host and the employer of the employees as to what the actual protected rate of pay is. Are there mechanisms in the Act to deal with that? Yeah, so
0: primarily it's an obligation on the host to provide information. So, uh, And the the Act, the provisions talk about a wide range of information basically to enable the uh, labour hire employer to work out what that protected rate of pay is. Now, might be... Historically, the way they've calculated it, it may be payroll records. It, it's quite broad, but uh, I th- suppose the key for that is that there's there's a right to request that information. But the, the turnaround time after you know it's pretty quick. It's as soon as reasonably practical to provide that information. So it's got to be turned. The obligation is to provide that to the labour hire employer quickly or as soon as reasonably possible.
1: You know, what worries me about that. That it's going to be a defence to non-compliance with the order if the yeah. employer relies on incorrect information from the host about how to calculate it. What does that tell you? It tells you you're going to get a stack of questions for information from employers to hosts. So that's going to create an industry in itself and something that's going to have to be managed. Um, Short-term exception, Nico. There's another exclusion from all of this. Yeah,
0: so I mean, the the commentary around this is it wasn't intended to deal with um, legitimate short-term labour hire requirements for an employer. Uh, so there's built in, and once the order is made, there's an, potentially an exemption from the, applying the protective rate of pay for a short term, which is up to three months for some other order being made. Um, three months is not a long time. And we're hearing from uh, some employers in industries that three months is just not workable in their industry because of the way that... And it also, it talks about short term or seasonal work. So what does seasonal work mean? Mm-hmm. How, how broad is that? Uh, we all understand, like, you know... Um, in the agriculture horticultural sector seasonal means fruit pickers are coming in and out that's a mm-hmm. simple example but there are other are broader applications for that seasonal work yeah. that's 40, again not 40 teams. A, that's right <laughs> 40 teams. um you know uh, there's other examples where people in, people come and work over summer or work over winter for example we're not not initially aligned mm-hmm. to the the the, the, the seasons but it's aligned to sort of periods of time so we need to that really needs to be explored yeah and there's also an exemption for training arrangements. So putting in place a arrangement for training for a, short, for a short period of time does not get an exemption as well.
1: Yeah. And there's opportunities in excep- exceptional circumstances to either reduce or increase that three-month exception as well. But I imagine that will be applied in a pretty limited way. Which brings us, I think, to the final really significant element of this, Nico, and that's anti-avoidance. So that's the sting in the tail for this. Mm. So um, the, as I said at the start,
0: the anti-avoidance provisions take effect immediately. Um, there are specific provisions that make avoidance contravention. So and, uh, um, so basically, where an employer or host enters into a scheme or carries out or begins to carry out a scheme, either alone or with another person, where the sole or dominant purpose, so we know those words, sole or dominant purpose, is to prevent the commission from making a regulated labour hire arrangement order, and the commission is prevented from making the order, it's a breach of the avoidance provision. So anything you put in place which has the sole or dominant purpose to do that uh, becomes a breach of the anti-avoidance provision. Now, again...
1: And if it passes, it applies to contact now. Now, now correct. Yep. So That's any
0: right. structural restructuring of your employment arrangements you're doing now mm. could potentially breach the anti-avoidance provisions. The other part of it is that we've seen the burden of proof of a lot of civil remedy provisions is the balance of the balance mm. probabilities. This is... It could reasonably be concluded Yeah. Mm. so uh, there's a whole range of things that might not be other, we know what a solar dominant purpose is we've seen that as part of the general protections yeah. provisions but it could reasonably be it could reasonably be concluded as a really low threshold for proof uh, so that's going to be difficult to get around so anything uh, again trying to find new loopholes try, not loopholes but new opportunities becomes a lot harder because those provisions have been put in place that's right and there's significant civil remedy civil remedy penalty provisions that apply to, an, to the anti-avoidance provisions again You've got a broad scheme which will be uh, um, applied generously with a whole range of factors that the commission can take into account, and then on top of that, any sort of arrangements that attempt to be put in place to avoid it, which have the effect of the order not being made, becomes a uh, becomes a civil rem- civil remedy provision itself,
1: as well as abusing the short term exception yeah, or uh, engaging terminating employees to engage them as independent contractors. That's right.
0: So there's a specific anti uh, uh, avoidance if you engage an independent contractor to avoid this provision. Again, it's a, it's a, you're a contravention of the provisions.
1: Yeah, that's right. So look, there's a lot to take in there, Nick. I think, yeah. it's, a, yeah. as we said, this is extremely complex. It's already confusing a, a lot of employers and principals out there. But um, I think if it does go through, we're necessarily going to see a reduction in the use of contractors and labour hire. That's right. It incentivises the onboarding of more direct labour. Mm. For those who don't, it's inevitably going to be more expensive. You'll have to pay the the rates that you would otherwise pay your direct hire plus margin on top. Correct. That really disincentivises.
0: And you combine that with uh, provisions for casuals, so mm. engaging casual labour, provide that with the the newer provisions about maximum fixed term contracts, uh, multi enterprise bargaining. It really pushes uh, employers away from other type of employment arrangements. And like these changes, as I said, we had sort of enterprise bargaining at an enterprise level since the late 90s. Um, some of our clients would have significantly different arrangements if this was in place in the 2000s, like, mm. and some of our clients wouldn't exist. Like there'd be different entities that have been set up as part of a system. Under this regime, you just wouldn't set up some of these organisations. Yeah, or mm. you can't do it. That's right.
1: But to your point, multi-enterprise bargaining, what this does is actually bring enterprise bargaining generally back to the very centre of the IR system, yeah. because either... You're onboarding a significant proportion of your workforce that has previously been external, mm. therefore EAs that cover much more people, mm. bigger negotiations, bigger. bigger risk, harder to actually mitigate industrial action. Or if you don't do that and you maintain external workforces, well the EAs are actually dictating how much they cost anyway. Correct. So it's actually time, I think there's a long list of things that we suggest employers and principals do to ready for this. I won't go into all of them. Give us a call if you want more detail. <laughs> but I think the two. Uh, Number one, get ready for this fair and reasonable test. Of course, assess your exposure to the jurisdictional prerequisites as a first step. But if you find yourselves to likely be within this new system, what are you going to say about whether it's fair or reasonable to Mm. require you to apply these higher rates of pay or for your uh, labour hire or contractor personnel to be paid those higher rates? Mm. And then secondly, we're going to have to engage more directly with enterprise bargaining. It's uh, not possible anymore to sidestep EAs uh, or to minimize their significance because there's alternate labor that's being paid at different rates. We're going to have to engage with them, and if they don't work due to flexibility, cost, content, well, they're necessarily going to have to be negotiated down. And if you can't do that voluntarily, we do have the intractable bargaining Mm. jurisdiction to now look at workplace determinations.
2: That's right. And we've seen a couple of applications be made as we're recording this today. So it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. But the ability of employers to rely upon contingent labour sources, whether that be casual flexing up in the manner that we have or alternate labour sources in the form of contractors, The other point, Rowan, which you've touched on, but it really means that the ability for employers to mitigate protected industrial action and and continue operations is is really diminished in that space. And and again, the intractable bargaining stream will be uh, a really important um, mechanism, I think, in, in all this.
1: Yeah, many people behind us working on that as we speak. Yeah, I think, that's right. Anyway, thanks very much, Nico. So, yeah. a lot to think about there. We'll launch straight into our second topic, Nat, the yep. regulation of non employees in the gig economy and yeah. road transport.
2: Thanks, Rowan. Look, I, I think this is a really profound move by this country to regulate uh, a, a whole suite of workers that previously haven't had the sort of protection. So, At a really high level, you know, we've got and had had for such a long time the common law cases dealing with concepts of, you know, master servant and no work, no pay and protections given to employees. That, that distinction, employees, once they have that status, have a whole suite of rights and protections, ranging from protection from unfair dismissal, the ability to engage in uh, collective bargaining, um, you know, leave entitlements, those sorts of things. And with a few legislative exceptions in the form of, say, some workers' compensation protection and superannuation entitlements, it's, it, it's it's been a case of quite all or nothing. Mm. And the rationale for that is that if you're an independent contractor, the focus is on those two words, the independence, so you negotiate the terms and conditions that suits you for the provision of those services. And the contract, it's a recognition of the privity of contract and, and the rights for parties to be able to bargain and um, you know, sell their, their labour and their skills in that particular manner. Now, if passed, what we are moving to as a country is um, some form of protections, employee-like protections for employee-like workers that are not employees. And so we've seen this already in some jurisdictions, like Canada, there is a concept of dependent worker. In the UK, we're seeing similar sorts of things. These these suites of reforms go further than that, though. So in those countries, there are protections um, against things like um, unfair dismissal, basically, so, and minimum terms and conditions, and it's an individualised protection. What is being proposed now is, um, and I'll talk about this in a bit more detail, again, collectivism, a, a, a push from government and a recognition that there is strength in numbers. So not only do you, Nico, as an individual get protections from the right to not be um, removed from your online platform in an unfair manner or without a valid reason or having a chance to convince me why that shouldn't be the case, but you, Nick and you, Rowan, can band together and come to me with the assistance of your union and demand terms and conditions of employment that apply across you. So uh, just at the outset, really, really profound changes.
1: It's big, that's
2: for sure. It is. It's really, um, you know, again, to your point, the Commission is going to be very busy indeed. And a lot of the detail as to those terms and conditions and the right, we are, that, that Commission is going to be provided with enhanced powers and jurisdiction to not only set the terms and conditions of those employment, but deal with dispute, sorry, quasi-employment, employment-like terms and conditions, but also resolve disputes in relation to those things.
1: Before we get to those details now, I'm interested in, so the group of workers that this applies to is not at large, there's no sort of general test, sort of two discrete groups. Yep, two discrete groups. Yeah, sure, absolutely.
2: So um, there are participants in the gig economy, and it's not just anyone who utilises an online platform to provide their services. This is really targeted towards those who are wholly or effectively fully dependent upon that labour source in order to provide their services. Um, There's a recognition that those people have low bargaining power so again a degree of subjectivity in that test in relation to who would be considered to be an eligible or regulated employee like participant in that space so what are the examples
1: without naming names <laughs> <laughs> we don't, don't want to mention a client or potential well
2: those who provide specialized services where I think they have a greater preparedness or ability to engage the terms and conditions uh, negotiate, in, them. negotiate yeah. terms and con- negotiate terms and conditions yeah. and those who for example, um, don't have those specialized skills and might jump, in a vehicle or on a bike to deliver goods from A to B. One example we've
1: seen in the press, right, is let's call it the sort of air tasker type arrangement where you have um, in large part trades, and I'm generalising, but you've got tradespeople who put out some advertisement through airtasker and say, I'm available to form XYZ services, yep. they've got their own business, two hundred dollars. Yeah, now it's open for them to set the rate, yep. generally speaking, uh, how to do it. The cost includes provision of materials and all those things. I mean, that and negotiate, pretty unlikely to be captured by co-correct. this. Correct,
2: it's yeah. not. And, and quite specifically, it's not mm-hmm. designed to capture that. And so, that's to, to build example. on your yeah. point, exactly, those people, or, or even higher specialised services where there is the ability to negotiate terms and conditions. Yeah. But um, participants who participate on platforms where basically the terms and conditions by which they are paid is dictated by that online platform. Mm. It is designed to caption them because the, the bargaining power is not there. There's also a threshold test in terms of length of engagement and participation in that platform. So again, not dissimilar to our minimum engagement period for an eligible worker to bring an unfair dismissal claim. the six months there. The other area of focus of regulated workers is in relation to the road transport and distribution industry and up and down the supply chain. So traditionally in that industry, you have a category of workers who are owner drivers, to use that sort of language, who will often provide their own vehicle um, for a transport operator to provide their services. The the legislation will extend up and down the supply chain um, of those drivers, independent contractors and um, the road transport There's been
0: state-based legislation. There has, contracts absolutely. That's right, Nico. So
2: in New yeah. South Wales, it is an, an area that's already, um, you know, regulated. And even more broadly, the independent, the Federal Independent Contractors Act um, regulates the fairness of contracts in relation to these sorts of services. So um, this is being brought into the Federal Scheme under the Fair Work Act, and as we said, a whole host of powers in relation to that.
1: So they're the the two groups? Yep. Digital labour platform operators and road transport distribution contractors. Yep. What happens then? So let's let's assume we're dealing with those cohorts. What's the effect of this regulation?
2: So one of the um, main changes is that the Fair Work Commission will have the power to make a minimum standards order. And uh, an MSO is like you will hear in relation to a modern award. So the idea of an MSO is to set the minimum conditions of employment, not necessarily the terms, and I keep saying employment, engagement (laughs) Engagement or quasi-employment in relation to the provision of work in these sectors. One takeaway for those listening who might be brought into this sphere is that it is absolutely critical to participate in the consultation process for the making of those instruments. Now, the breadth of matters that the Fair Work Commission can include in an MSO are reasonably broad, not as broad as the range of matters that are capable of being included in a modern award. Not far off though. No, it's not far off. And and one of them um, I was struck by is that an MSO can include terms including, but not related to, payment terms. Okay, fair enough. That's be paid fortnightly or those sorts of things. Deductions, working time, working time. For people who jump on an online platform and choose to deliver a pizza mm. at a time that suits them around their uni break or whatever it to is that they're doing, and so on, so on. how bizarre! Yeah. I, that, I mean, there is just—it's it, going to be really interesting to see how this is tackled by the yeah. commission because, I mean, we do have a suite of modern awards and you know, road transport and distribution award. We've got the fast food industry mm. award. We've got a suite of terms and conditions of employment, but working time, it might be that there's a limitation on people accessing that particular platform for more than 12 hours at a time, for example, but what we do know about participants in those digital platforms is that they platform jump, Mm. right? So...
1: That's the big question ah. all of this now, because what it does is give a lot of scope for discretion and this process could end anywhere because that could be interpreted narrowly and maybe it's a fatigue-based rule that will be imposed that's actually quite limited in its application. Maybe. it could be at the other end Maybe. of the spectrum. Yeah. So your, your suggestion is a good one, that you can't be a passenger in this. Absolutely not, If so you're to affected speak. by yeah. it. That's, that's, <laughs> that's actually quite I wish that was well deliberate. Done. That's yeah. A nice, yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, make submissions is your uh, point. Make submissions. Yeah. And the
2: other thing to keep in mind is that um, these workers um, have the ability to be represented by unions who you know in this space so it is going to be very similar to the process that we've all become accustomed with those seasoned uh, practitioners with the award simplification the award modernization process it is going to be a similar sort of regime in the relation to the creation of msos in that space
1: what else is there Nat? So, msos yeah co-
2: collectivism collective mm. agreement so this is the other um Really important point, again, that um, on top of what we have, like the baseline MSOs dealing with awards, there is also the ability for participants, so road transport, um, owner drivers, or a a collection of participants who provide their services through a digital platform to collectivise and to um, bargain collectively for terms and conditions of engagement, nearly caught myself again, that will apply, thank you will apply to people who are covered by that particular collective agreement.
0: And we haven't seen that in state-based legislation. No, so no we haven't. There has been representation but not the collectivism. So.
2: Absolutely and um, again this is something that distinguishes Australia from other common law jurisdictions where we have seen some form of dependent worker like protections but this goes a bit further yeah. guys. So again in relation to the process for how this works there will be um, the ability to participate, there will be Um, The Fair Work Commission is required to um, publish and consult in relation to those those sorts of matters. So again, it's really critical um, to, um, you know, do some homework in relation to those things and collective agreements are registered with the Mm. Fair Work Commission the way good old fashioned enterprise agreements are. In that space,
1: and the legislations, of course, had to include some carve-outs or exceptions yeah. from competition law as well, when enable yeah. this actually happen. Yeah. which is quite fascinating. Fascinating. But so, and there's of course more detail on that there in is. our summary. Yeah. Now, but um, one topic that's getting a lot of airplay is the unfair deactivation and termination yeah. Of jurisdiction. Can
2: yeah. You tell us a bit yeah. Sure. So, so this again, you, you'll you'll be familiar with some of the concepts. It is designed to provide. Um, workers, employee-like workers, subject to certain thresholds for eligibility, so time served, are they reliant on on that, to uh, have rights remedies if they have been unfairly deactivated from that platform. So basically, it provides um, rights and protections from um, deactivation where there's not a valid reason in relation to that deactivation and basically procedural fairness type rights in relation to that as well. So players in that space, um, most of them already, by the way, um, you know, have these sorts of mechanisms in place, but it does require for there to be some thought and process and robust procedures put in place as they would employees in relation to removing someone's access to a particular platform.
1: And then resourcing the applications that then ensue. I mean, I think that's the extra on top of this. As you say, many had these processes anyway, but there's necessarily going to be a heavy resourcing demand for dealing with it. And I imagine I'll need to hire some new Fair Work Commission members as well. I think
2: that's right, Mm -hmm. Rowan. Yep, yep.
1: And I think there was one other element to this, Nat, which we haven't touched on, the unfair contracts jurisdiction, which is actually a little bit broader, I think. It is a bit
2: broader. So, again, this is designed to provide protection for um, contractors from unfair terms and conditions and and bargaining power. So it it touches over a little bit with the Independent Contracting Act at a federal level and, um, again, brings this into the Fair Work sphere where the Fair Work Commission will have jurisdiction um, to deal with terms that are, are Uh, unfair or um, in relation to contracts. It's got a ring of the early 2000s New (laughs) South Wales legislation
0: from police. Correct.
2: Yep, correct. Which isn't
1: confined to gig economy or road transport. That's any parties to services contracts that earn below a certain threshold. So that's, again, more fair commission members, I suspect.
2: I think that's right.
1: Yeah. Okay. Look, that's been really useful. Now, I think the implications of that are going to be huge. And again, uh, it's going to, probably cause a a fairly significant shift in how these businesses engage labour, interact with labour, the cost of it, and um, I think it's really important that for those that participate in those sectors actually have a say in this process as the orders are are made. I
2: think that's right, Rowan. I Mm. think the other point to keep in mind is that even if you're listening and you're going, oh, we're fine because we don't operate a platform or we don't ourselves, you know, Operate a a distribution of trucks, for example. You know, at the end of the day, there is going to be increased cost Mm. arising from these changes, unapologetically. In fact, the minister said, be prepared to pay more for your pizza. Mm. So this needs to come from somewhere. At the end of the day, it is going to be the end consumer who pays more to get whatever it is delivered to their home or to your business. So almost everyone listening, almost is going to have to get their products to their customers, B2B contracts. All this is going to place pressure on businesses in relation to the way they do business. And I think even if you're not participating directly in this, you need to have a keen eye to how people you contract with Mm -hmm. will be brought into this and what that will mean for your business and its operating costs.
1: That's well said, Nat. So look, that's all we have time for on this episode. We will have a couple more to dissect the remainder of the bill. But two really significant changes, if they commence, will have a substantive impact on most businesses. So keep an eye out for our updates. Have a look at our great summary that we've got available on our IR Reform Hub. And we also love to hear feedback on Inside IR. So please reach out, uh, comment, direct message, send us an email insideir at hsf.com otherwise we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of inside ir